Welcome to Vitals, where we check in on the most important topics in healthcare and data. Today, we're getting a pulse on health equity and SDOH. Joining us from Umqua Health in Oregon are Dr. Douglas Carr, Chief Medical Officer, and Dr. Robin Traver, Senior Director of Medical Management. Arcadia's very own Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Rich Parker, is also here to lend his curiosity, his expertise, and his conversational prowess to this very important topic. Together, they'll cover challenges and solutions around creating and maintaining a SDOH dataset, identifying and assessing patients with the highest risk levels, and Umqua Health's own initiatives to use SDOH to provide air purifiers to at-risk patients amidst Oregon's wildfires. Dr. Rich, I'm gonna hand it over to you to get this conversation started. Great, thanks Mike very much. Um, welcome everybody and uh, Dr. Carr and Dr. Traver, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, just by way of introduction, um, I am Rich Parker, the Chief Medical Officer for Arcadia. Arcadia is a national leader in healthcare data and analytics. Uh, today we're focusing on social determinants of health, which I'm gonna define in a minute, so we are all on the same page. Uh, but without further ado, I'm going to ask my uh, friends and colleagues to introduce themselves. Uh, Dr. Carr, why don't you go first? Thank you, Rich. Uh, I'm Douglas Carr. I'm Chief Medical Officer at Umqua Health uh, in that role for about five years, prior to which time I was a practicing internist and administrator at a multi-specialty group practice in Billings, Montana at Billings Clinic, as well as Peace Health Medical Group out here in Oregon uh, prior to uh, joining Umqua Health. And I'm pleased to, uh, to discuss uh, some of our activities. I think next is uh, my colleague, Robin Traver. Hello, I'm uh, Robin Traver. I'm a pharmacist by training. Um, I've also worked for a variety of CCOs across the state, so including Moda Health um, as well as Care Oregon. Uh, I started my work at Umqua Health as the pharmacy director. Um, really, I, I loved using my left brain data analytics um, and process improvement um, passion, really. Um, and then recently, over the past year, I've had the opportunity to expand this role um, into where I manage the care coordination teams as well, so their physical and behavioral health teams, which I've loved kind of using that right-brained um, side to really creatively solve problems and improve our population's health. So I'm, I'm very happy to be here today. Great. Well, thanks, uh, Doug and Robin, very much. And I think we've agreed we're going to be on first name basis today, so that's good. Um, just by way of introduction of this topic, uh, doctors, all healthcare providers have known forever that we don't see patients in a vacuum, that social determinants of health, which is the new catchphrase, is an issue or a set of issues that have been around for as long as people have been around and they're systemic and I'm gonna name them. We're gonna circle back to these today. I'm gonna to quote one study and then I'm gonna turn it over to my colleagues. So when we talk about social determinants of health, we are talking about housing, behavioral health, um, addiction, drugs, alcohol, social isolation, childcare issues, food insecurity, violence, financial stability or lack thereof, employment, transportation. Um, and I wanna just quote a study that was done by VCU 
a few years ago that looked at Boston, my hometown. And it found that in the Back Bay, which is one of our uh, most well-to-do parts of Boston, life expectancy was 92 years. And less than a half a mile away in the part of town known as Roxbury, life expectancy was 59 years. And it's all Boston. So I found that to be rather shocking. And I think it highlights how the social determinants of health are so determinative in outcomes and how we as the healthcare system need to do a better job. So without further ado, I'm gonna turn it over to Doug and Robin, and we're gonna make this interactive. Um, please uh, put your questions into the chat as we go, and we'll make this as interactive as possible. And I promise we'll end by three o'clock. So um, Doug and Robin, take it away. Thank you, uh, Rich, I appreciate it. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about uh, UMQA Health. Uh, because it is uh, a little bit different than urban Boston. Douglas County is that brown uh, county in the left uh, lower quadrant of that map. And it's smack dab in the middle of uh, the lumber industry. It's the center of uh, lumbering in, uh, in, in Oregon, Western Oregon. And as a result, we're talking about a rural uh, community. And so our issues related to SDOH uh, are minimally related to uh, race and ethnicity and more related to rurality in the sum total of things. A little bit about Oregon and how they managed uh, their Medicaid. Uh, they've utilized CMS waivers uh, to create a Medicaid system unlike any other state. Uh, they expanded uh, in uh, 2014 to cover 25% of all uh, Oregonians. And there's very few people that are not covered, even uh, those who don't have citizenship are, are now covered. Uh, there is a prioritized list of covered services that, uh, that a uh, health equity or health, uh, uh, if uh, a, 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 a board of physicians and uh, other professionals have determined uh, have evidence uh, to uh, base our funding of these uh, procedures on. And uh, it, it only emphasizes uh, treatment of, uh, of uh, conditions that have high value care. So low value care isn't funded, but prevention, vision, dental, behavioral health are. The state provides the premium dollars to local groups. So it's not the, the national companies nor the state itself. And these local groups are called community care organizations. They're supposed to be uh, in the community and connected well with them. And that is the case for UMQA Health. Additionally, a significant amount of the premium is set aside to provide for services that aren't uh, true medical costs. They, they don't have CPT codes, uh, but they really do have an impact on a person's health. So providing temporary housing for someone who is homeless post-discharge to help with uh, wound healing, for example, or our very specific in Oregon for the last couple of years, summers, uh, air conditioners for heat waves and air purifiers for wildlife uh, fires. 
Umpqua Health uh, gets its name from the Umpqua Indians and the river named after them that courses through uh, Roseburg, which is our county seat. And you can see this, it's on uh, Interstate 5 uh, as well, bisecting this community. Umpqua Health Alliance was uh, created by the local IPA and the local Seoul Community Hospital. And that's why all providers within the county, they have skin in the game, they are, are uh, willing and engaged to providers of care. Our county has about 112,000 last census and over 35,000 of those uh, patients, of those uh, people are actual members in Medicaid at uh, Umpqua Health. It's a rural county. We've mentioned the, uh, it extends from the Cascades all the way to the coast. So I'm going to uh, now call on uh, Robin to take us uh, into the specifics of, of what we've been doing. Yeah, thanks, Doug. I, I would just say that for the audience, I think that as Doug pointed out, they are a rural area you're dealing with wildfires. So every part of the country has some different aspects of SDOH, but I suspect that we all have a systemic SDOH issues to deal with. So with that, uh, Robin, we'll turn it over to you. All right, thank you. I wanted to just start by giving a, a quick overview of our wonderful care coordination team, um, which we have composed of nurses, respiratory therapists, uh, licensed clinical social workers, community health workers, uh, wonderful group of, of people that work with our members on a short-term or long-term basis and really help them achieve their health goals. So in this diagram, now I wanted to draw attention to the top there, I guess 12 o'clock if this were o'clock. Uh, one of the most important tools that we use is to, uh, in order to assess our members' health needs is our health risk assessment or the HRA as we call it. Um, this is a dynamic, customized assessment within Arcadia. Um, and really, depending on how our members respond to each question in this assessment, it will trigger specific workflows. Um, so going clockwise around this diagram, um, through the HRA, we're able to identify our members' needs, so including the medical, pharmacy, mental, or behavioral health needs. Um, then based on their needs, the members will be triggered for enrollment into one of our case management programs. I have those listed on the bottom there. Um, so for example, one of the questions asks if the, the member is experiencing any medication concerns or issues. Uh, if they answer yes to that, then an enrollment to our pharmacist-led uh, medication therapy management program would be automatically triggered and generated. So it's kind of a, a neat way how the system and, and everything interconnects and, and really automates workflows. Um, once the member is enrolled in one of our programs, the care manager will then create an individualized care plan uh, with goals and interventions. Uh, many of these actually are triggered as the care manager goes through the assessment with, an, with a member. Um, some of these interventions that are triggered are actually referrals to our community partners um, or to connect members with supports and resources uh, really needed to address those social determinants of health that we've kind of, Rich has talked about a little bit previously, um, and also kind of address their unmet needs. So I just love how in Arcadia everything is interrelated and it just kind of seamlessly 
um, takes us through the whole process of care coordination. I really enjoyed that. Robin or Doug, can one of you explain for our audience, are you primarily the payer or are you the provider or are you both structurally? It's a great question. So in Oregon, I think uh, Dr. Carr you know, mentioned this a bit, um, we really coordinate care. Um, we're coordinate, coordinated care organizations. We are, yes, the payer, um, but we also are really um, involved in, in the delivery of the healthcare and really coordinating that um, within the community. So we are a payer. We do have a, uh, a clinic uh, that uh, we employ uh, providers there, uh, physicians and, and other, uh, and, and it probably only uh, provides care to maybe 10% of our members. So we do have a presence, uh, but we've diminished that presence over time as uh, as clinics in the community have embraced uh, seeing Medicaid patients. Uh, so we we don't have to provide our own uh, uh, care to our, our members. Great, thanks for that clarification. And what, one of the core principles that's really, you know, woven throughout all of our programs at Uncle Health is to use this health equity lens um, to really improve the delivery of health services and the system of care. Um, we do this through addressing our members' social determinants of health, um, through care coordination, removing barriers to successful health outcomes, um, and really, I guess, just addressing those health disparities. Um, so as we see here, the, we know that the social determinants of health are the conditions and the environment um, that we're born, live, learn, work, play, um, worship, and age, really. So all of those factors that affect a wide range of our health, um, our functioning, um, and our quality of life outcomes. So, you know, we have a vast body, body of research that really shows that addressing those social determinants of health is crucial for improving um, health of our members for reducing some of the long-standing disparities in healthcare, and we've talked. You know, Rich talked about a little bit about that in the study that that he's uh, referred to. But one of the things that I love about Arcadia's platform is that we can actually see firsthand how these social determinants of health are impacting our members' life. Um, we have the ability to automate some of the workflows to ensure that our staff are using that health equity lens and addressing that, you know, the social determinant. So um, through our assessments, they'll be triggered. It's almost a reminder for staff to make sure that they are, you know, referring or providing supports or resources to members to address some of those things. Um, Robin, you know, can I just, Robin, can I just pause you for a sec? I, I wanna in, um, bring up a question that came up from one of the participants who asked, how is the HRA integrated into the EHR? Can you handle that one? Yeah, that's actually a, a great idea. We do not have that integrated into the EHR at this time. Um, it would be, I think, very beneficial to have that in order to get more um, engagement or more responses from our membership. Um, I might write that down actually as an idea for future exploration. <laughs> Good question. So the, the HRA is uh, in a format where it can actually be uh, sent by uh, SMS uh, text 
messaging to our members. So that there, it, it turns out that uh, unlike, well, probably like everyone else, they're, they're less apt to take a call even from their health plan. And, uh, but they're more apt to respond to a text message uh, in that regard. And then that can lead to a, a direct conversation with one of our uh, care coordinators. Great, thanks. Um, I think we might have some answers on the poll we just did. Okay, this is interesting. So the question was, is your organization using SDOH data? 60% yes, 5% no, 35% working on it. Great, thanks all for your participation. And um, let's move forward. Um, on a note, uh, Rich, the uh, Oregon Health Authority, our Oregon Health Plan uh, requires us under contract to make sure that we, that our uh, clinics, the clinics that provide care to our members actually capture uh, real D data uh, around race, ethnicity, it's, and uh, uh, language. Uh, it also, uh, is encouraging what what we've done is we've provided incentives to all of our clinics for creating uh, and dropping Z codes around SDOH uh, statuses uh, uh, on their claims. So in addition to their diagnoses, uh, to the degree that they utilize uh, Z codes that we can then capture and uh, add to our database uh, in, uh, in in Arcadia. We actually provide financial incentives to these clients. Doug, Doug, do you want to just clarify what a Z code is for everybody? A Z code is a status. It might be uh, simply uh, a Z code for uh, you know pregnancy, uh, or uh, you know obstetricians have been using it for years. Uh, but it also there's a whole host of statuses other than uh, pregnancy, uh, amputation, you know, paralysis, etc. There's Z codes for things like uh, homelessness, for um, uh, for um, um, uh, being married, for being uh, single, for being uh, you know widowed, for living in a, in a uh, tough situation, etc. So that's uh, that's a whole host of opportunity to glean information from claims data. If, if the providers are comfortable doing this and they, we've encouraged them to create EMR prompts uh, and to the degree that they are uh, now actively uh, providing that information to us as a payer. Great, thanks. Thanks, Doug. We got a couple of questions in the chat, which I'm gonna hold right now because I wanna make sure we have time for your important presentation. So thanks for folks putting questions in the chat. I think we'll have time at the end to get to all of them, but I'm gonna take the prerogative to um, keep us moving forward. Okay, great. So, um, you know, the ability to use the, the data that we're talking about that's captured through the, the care coordination workflows and the assessment um, really gives us a clear picture of the issues that are impact, impacting our community, um, which really helps provide us, you know, where we should focus our energy for improving things, improving our health of our population. Um, when we surveyed our members to assess each social determinant of health domain, um, we wanted to see what's most important to our community, what things we need to really help most to address. 
I think it's probably not surprising that the number one priority was really housing. Um, you know, we're, we're really seeing that across the state, followed by behavioral and mental health availability, um, health behaviors such as smoking cessation is third. Um, so we really have everything, you know, listed as far as importance, rank of importance for our members that responded to this question. One Robin, I just wanted to, be, before you move on, I don't know if you were done talking about this slide, but it's such a beautiful slide and there's so much interesting information in there. And I was thinking about kind of how the metabolic syndrome is the final common pathway for a number of problems. Um, I'm wondering if you and Doug consider that chronic stress, which is not on this list, is in a way a final common pathway for a lot of these systemic issues that result in morbidity for your population. So I think that's uh, affected on the uh, a, a couple more slides from now. Okay. Robin will take care of that. All right. Appreciate it. So, I mean, really, I think these social determinants of health are probably pretty similar to our um, across the state. I would say that probably some of the things that are different, you know, being a rural community, um, probably the social isolation and supports, which shows up as number four there, is, is likely a um, higher in a rural area, as well as transportation. So we do have non-emergent medical transportation to help with that. But that definitely is a challenge that a lot of our members face just you know, the remote nature of things out here. So kind of moving on, and I, I love the question about stress because I think that's a huge factor and it's really shown in, in our data. Um, I really like Arcadia's Vista dashboard library. It's, it's really neat. Um, the care management assessment results dashboard, this is what this, these visuals are from here but it has a great visualization for our members' um, responses to our assessments. So what it does is it rolls up our individual responses to a population level, and, and that really gives us some meaningful and actionable insights into our population's health. So the, the number in the middle of each of those is how many people responded. Um, so I've, I've displayed some of the measures here that really demonstrate how those social determinants are impacting our population. At the top row there, um, starting at the left, if you look about a, a quarter of our members have less than high school education, which, you know, really can impact their ability to navigate care. 11% um, of our members report having some cultural, religious, or spiritual beliefs that they feel like will influence their care, which I think was actually greater than I expected with our population's um, just composition. Um, it's really great data to have. Um, the last one on the top row is, you know, we asked members if they were hard of hearing, deaf, blind, or had another uh, disability um, that's, you know, affecting them. And I was really surprised by this one as well. So we had almost half of our members respond yes to this question. And I asked our care coordinators about this and said, you know, that can't be right. And they said that a lot of the members will report that. Um, and I think there's an other field and they will, you know, list things like, even, you know, like I hurt my foot or I cut my foot and I have a hard time walking around the past few weeks, you know, and a lot of times what's bringing them to us and, and therefore doing this assessment are things that are impacting their health and they're really needing help with and they're seeing it as, you know, a disability. Um, they really can't accomplish much after that. Um, 
the bottom row here, I think really speaks to that stress um, and how our members are so impacted by stressful circumstances. So if you look at the bottom left there, we have 18% of the six and a half thousand people that responded to this are worried about losing their housing. That's a, that's a lot and that's a major stressor. A similarly, 18% of our members um, are stressed about lack of transportation and are not able to get uh, attend medical appointments, go to work, or get the things they need just to live. Um, again, very stressful. Um, and then lastly, I think the bottom right there really shows directly, um, you know, it's no surprise 82% of our population are members that are assessed or reporting some level of stress um, with actually 40% of them reporting high levels of stress. Um, and, you know, as we talked about, we know that that chronic stress really does adversely impact health in a significant way. So I think that's, you know, a really good cumulative effect or visual that shows how much these things are contributing to stress for our members. Yeah, I think these um, slides are really, this slide in particular is really very illustrative and really important. And we got a question in the chat about whether there's any knowledge if these findings are similar throughout your state. Um, I would say that it's kind of an axiom axiom in our world that we need a diagnosis before we can do a treatment plan. And um, here you've given some really good diagnostic information about your population that should help guide your allocation of resources, which I know we're going to get to. I think the quick answer is this data relates to your specific population, and um, we'd be happy to have other customers use these tools um, to get a better handle on your population. But I think it'd be very interesting, frankly, to do some comparative um, diagnosing of these SDOH metrics in different parts of the country. Absolutely. Okay, we've got another question for the audience. Um, hopefully everyone can see this. What is the biggest challenge in putting SDOH data to work for your population? That would be what we call an open-ended question. So um, audience members, feel free to go at it and uh, we'll try to read as many of your responses or questions as possible. So Robin, if you wanna go ahead. Yeah, so I'm kind of just speaking even a little bit more to that chronic stress piece and how it impacts our members' ability to care for themselves. Um, you know, we kind of, one of the cool things that we did was we combined some of the responses to the assessment with, um, so the last slide really showed individual responses to questions. And then when we start combining the questions and saying, okay, if they responded this way to this question, are they more likely to then respond this way to this other question? Um, and you can see exactly that on the right. When you look at the stress levels, so each time someone responded to having you know higher stress level, they really it's showing that they it's really directly related to how much care that they help with, that they need with their care. Um, similarly, when we look at some of the other social determinants of health, the data is clear as well. So our members report needing significantly more help with their health when they lack housing, um, when they have cultural or spiritual beliefs impacting their health care, um, when they have difficulties with hearing or vision, 
or if they need a translator, um, or if they have you know lack of transportation. So all of those things, pretty pretty much any of you know these factors that we looked at, um, we would notice that people responded significantly more that they do need help with their care when they have those factors. Great, and of course that brings up a whole next list of questions practically, which is now which of these are actionable and with your limited resources, how do you allocate your staff, your money, your projects to try to ameliorate some of these? And I know that would probably be many hour discussion, but I'm sure our audience is asking that. Um, Doug, maybe could you address a little bit from a leadership perspective, how do you deal with the, just, okay, we see the problems now, which are the ones we can tackle? Well, I, uh, you know, all of them are worthy. Um, and so um, I think that a lot of times you, you have a certain amount of resources and you really look to see if you have um, leverage points. And so you end, end up uh, investing in things that you can actually uh, have, have an impact. So uh, in our uh, locale, it is, um, you know, it might be uh, investing in, in uh, transitional housing and, uh, and housing navigation uh, center, which is uh, with other community uh, partners. But until the, you know, once that emerged out of the community, we, we started investing in it. Uh, but trying to get the momentum of the community to start uh, involved, being involved was part of the, the, the challenge. And so you look for the opportunities and, and you try to strike when, when the, when the uh, iron's hot there. Now, I have a question in the chat. I'm not sure you can answer this, but we'll give it a try. So somebody yeah. asked, they're curious to know if there were any surprising correlations or findings that you were not expecting when you ran these data. You know, I think that um, one of the things, because we don't have a, a huge population, um, one of the things that was actually surprising was just how well it, it did predict. So I expected a little bit more, I guess, noise so that, that it wouldn't follow so closely and show such a strong correlation in the data. So that was something that I was surprised about. Um, I was also just generally honestly surprised about how much of our membership reported needing help with their care. Um, you know, and, and this data is going to be skewed more towards those that do need help because those that do need help, you know, we are kind of identifying through Arcadia's platform through, you know, high risk kind of measures, um, or they're reaching out to us directly because they need help or they're, you know, they have a care transition that's triggering it. So, um, there is some of that that's skewed, but, um, yeah. And, and, and again, I was surprised by, you know, the cultural spiritual beliefs impacting their health care for our population that really does show that you know we can't just say well we're rural those those things don't impact us we do have those things very much impacting us that we do need to address in order to kind of you know fix some of those historic um disparities that we've we've all seen great great, great. Robin, thanks robin there, there, there are a lot of ahead, questions Doug. i'm sorry no go ahead there, there are a lot of questions about the uh you know the the hra process itself and and i i may have opened up a can of worms with the uh, texting but uh, maybe perhaps you can uh, sort it out for us so um 
the the, uh, the HRA is we customized it within Arcadia. It's part of the uh, care coordination workflow. And then how do we end up? Uh, so we identify member any new member uh, has an HRA. Any member with a number of conditions, whether it's uh, um, um, uh, uh, serious and persistent mental illness, uh, uh, foster care, what what are some of the other high risk, uh, you know, the uh, uh, blinded disabled categories, etc. Uh, uh, serious uh, or uh, high risk medical conditions. They, they have a, uh, a health risk assessment um, that's required on a, on a periodic basis. And so uh, what does the outreach look like then to, from the health plan to these members? Good question. So yeah, we, um, we do have those triggers, you know, anyone that, uh, we have programs that are triggered. So as you said, you know, any new members will do the outreach. But then if there's, you know, a, a trigger that is, uh, we have program to signify that these people might need, um, you know, be more complex or have complex needs um, that they need help with, it will also trigger this. And what it does, it shows up in our system and enrollment as, or in our Arcadia system as a identified, you know, this number's identified potentially for needing care coordination, for needing that HRA. So we'll look and see if we had one sent out, you know, recently. And then we will, um, there is a text that goes out and I know there was a question about that. I did follow up with the team. So we don't currently have a way, the member can't, you know, click a link and complete that online, which I think would be a great, you know, option as a future um, improvement. Currently, we basically, you know, let the member know that we, that they can call our customer service, who then does, goes through the assessment with the member, um, helps them answer the questions. It is a pretty, you know, comprehensive assessment. Um, one of our goals is to really figure out how we can get more of our members completing it, because it, it's so crucial in the work that we do. Um, we also do outreach telephonically, so we have, I think, three outreaches that we we follow up the members, we text, we call, I think we might send one mailing as well, mail a hard copy to them. Um, so that's kind of the biggest way that, you know, we're trying to get these answered. But um, I think if we were more in a clinic environment, I think it would be, um, we have a little easier time, but it, it can be a bit challenging, you know, as the payer to get members to complete. Let um, me, um, so the let information me just... we receive from the HRA goes into our database in the Arcadia. Mm -hmm. We also have all the claims data that is coming through from our various clinics uh, who are seeing our members. And those contain uh, discrete, they'll contain uh, uh, codes for uh, claim codes, Z codes of statuses. That's added to the data with for each member. And then um, we, uh, we also have some data feeds about clinical conditions, immunizations, et cetera, that are part of the Medicaid program. And they are uh, directly linked uh, to our uh, various clinics EMRs. So let me, so, um, yeah. go, go ahead to finish that and then we, we should probably move no, on. And, and so there's a lot of, um, so, so a lot of the, uh, collection is uh, is actually done by the health plan but it's supplemented by 
by the information from the clinics. Right. So I had a related question here in the chat. Um, you know, sometimes ask, people ask me, well, what are Arcadia's goals for customers? And I can say from the CMO perspective, there I have three goals. Number one, we improve the health of the population. Number two, we improve the finances of the customers through their contracts. And number three, we improve the workflow for providers. So this question was about with all this data that you've collected, was this in any way burdensome to your providers? No, not, not at all um, that I'm aware of. We really have um, a lot of it is our teams that are, you know, I guess functioning as providers in that in that case. So it's nice how it actually walks through the workflow and it's just part of it. Um, there was also a question about how it's, you know, combined like hybrid data. Um, so everything is connected through Foundry, the reporting tool, and we have data analytics um, folks that can combine and slice that data in really in some really meaningful ways. They use Tableau a lot in order to do this, but um, that's kind of the neat thing is that it's not really burdensome for our providers and in, in the community. Good question. Great. All right, let's um, let's move forward. Sure. So. Getting a little bit more specific into this intervention, um, the Clean Air Project, um, just some background. Really, over the last few years, the the impact, the health impact of wildfire smoke has really grown exponentially in Oregon, as you can see from this map here. Um, you know, each each year we're getting more and more fires in general over time. Um, in the 2020 and 2021 fire seasons, there was actually 12 forest fires in Oregon that consumed more than 100,000 <clears throat> acres. So it really, I get a little choked up, but it really impacted our, our community quite a bit. Because these mega fires, they burned for um, you know more than two months, uh, really greatly increasing the risks of uh, wildfire smoke. And, and we saw that in the data, we saw increase in inhaler use. We could see you know how this was impacting our members and it was really hard to see. Um, Historically, we've kind of responded in a more reactive way. So our care coordination team has provided, you know, really a limited number of members with air purifiers to help improve their quality, you know, when they've requested them in the past couple of years during wildfire season. Um, it was really a small scale and, like I said, more reactive. Um, luckily, in 2022, there was some Oregon legislation that afforded the Oregon Health Authority the ability to provide air purifiers on a large scale to counties that are most affected by wildfire. Um, Douglas County is being, you know, one of those counties. And we actually have received 420 air purifiers so far um, from the OHA to really proactively distribute to our members in anticipation of this year's wildfire season. Luckily, we, you know, knock on wood, we have not had any major issues with wildfires yet this year, but, um, we really you know, are excited about being able to proactively try to address this. Um, so this was, you know, something we're excited about, but also it, it was a challenge. We had to quickly decide how we're going to get these devices out to the members that most need them, and then you know how we're going to distribute them, how we're going to track it, you know, for the state for their reporting. So moving into you know our work plan, how we did this. Um, I wanted to, you know, highlight the ways that we used Arcadia because that really was one of the core systems of this whole project. 
Um, the first piece being, you know, we needed to identify members who are clinically at risk for respiratory conditions. Um, the state took a stab at, you know, providing us a list of who they thought were were the um, most effective. And we, as we pulled these people up, we really weren't seeing. Um, we we didn't feel that these were, you know, our the most in need members. So one of the things that we did is we looked at Arcadia and to see what tools that they have, and they have a respiratory risk report that's a powerful analytic tool um, that really allows us to predict an individual's future risk of respiratory complication based on past events and claims data. Um, this reporting also has some, uh, the health equity data like race, ethnicity, you know, language, disability, those things um, in there. So we were allowed to use that health equity lens and really prioritize that population, move them you know, to the front of the line to receiving those devices. Um, once identified, we used the Arcadia's functionality to no notify members through a text that they, you know, qualified to receive this device and how to get it. Um, and then we made lots of outbound phone calls and received inbound phone calls that were tracked in Arcadia. So we can really show the work that we did and, and who was contacted, um, which is really one of the great things about Arcadia is that not only it facilitates the workflow, but it allows us to track and analyze um, and then report those outcomes. Um, the devices were then distributed through our transitional care clinic to our members. Um, we have our health, community health workers delivering some of those to our homebound members. Um, so, you know, all of these members being at risk for health complications, we wanted to obviously not miss the opportunity to engage them in our care management program and really assess their unmet, need, unmet needs. So we had our members fill out the health risk assessment and printed version while they waited in line. If there was, you know, a line, um, we had our care coordinators help them fill that out in certain circumstances so we could collect that data and really help those members even further. Robin, can I ask you to clarify something? You mentioned sure. that the, yeah, you mentioned that the initial report from the state did not seem adequately accurate in identifying patients who would benefit from the air purifiers. How did you determine that? What was your work process to figure that out and go to plan B? Good question. We actually, um, and not to at all disparage the Oregon Health Authority, they do great with the data that they have. Um, but we started pulling these members up and, and trying to look to see if they've had any, you know, claims or inhaler use or any uh, evidence that they, you know, might be a high acuity member, especially in a respiratory or cardiovascular um, circumstances. And I think one after another that we pulled up, really, we weren't seeing that. Um, we just weren't seeing that in the, in the claims and in the chart. So I think we said, you know, maybe we, we have this powerful tool that and we asked the state, is it okay if we use, you know, our, the software that we have to try to, you know, identify who we think is the most um, high acuity members. And, and they said, absolutely, that you're the first CCO to ask us, you know, to do that. That would be wonderful. So they appreciated the help there, I think. Um, and right, the that's really helpful. Specifically, there was a question about the respiratory risk report. The, that's based on uh, a, uh, claims data uh, that are fed into Arcadia to identify people with certain chronic conditions. Uh, and uh, the HRA does uh, add to that 
but uh, it's also uh, heavily based on uh, uh, risk adjustment related claims. Great, thanks. Yeah, ratio of call center staff, we, um, you know, we have 35,000 members. We probably, uh, our, our basic call center uh, group is no more than half a dozen, I believe. But when we're doing an active outreach, it's involving care coordinators, which would double that. And um, and so actually, it uh, and and it isn't to all thirty-five thousand members. So clearly, uh, our population of interest was probably a thousand, twelve hundred people potentially. Yeah, and we we actually have some of those preliminary results here. Um, but yeah, we, you know, and, and kind of speaking to the acuity of the members, it was really evident when we started calling members. And we, we had our customer care, which is, you know, our, our call center, essentially. We had our care coordination. I even pulled in pharmacy, our pharmacy team and our utilization management team to help with calls. Because okay. we found that they were taking a lot longer. And it's because the members, you know, it, it took them a while to get to the phone. They had the caregiver answer. Um, you know, so these are pretty especially in the first priority group. So we use that report to say, this is our first priority. We're gonna get these people first. Then second, we had four priority groups. Um, and especially getting through that first priority group, it did take some time um, to help those members. Um, and, it, and additionally, within each group, we overlaid the real D. <clears throat> and mm -hmm. then the, the those members went to the top, you know, to the front of the line. Those were the first that we were contacting and offering these to for each of the groups. So that's a way that you can use that to, when you have a cohort that is required clinically, but then you can take special care to make sure that you reach out to those most vulnerable within that co cohort. Let me follow up with a question for you guys. You know. In my work in care management, when I was in my prior incarnation as a provider, chief medical officer, there was a rule of thumb that about 50% of patients for whom you did outreach for care management actually accepted the offer, and the other 50% didn't for whatever reasons. And I see here in your results that of the 846 men, members who were offered an air purifier, 277 accepted. So what do you understand about the difference between the cohort who accepted versus the cohort who didn't? You know, actually most of those that we, and I don't have this information yet, one of the, the design flaws was I had a free text field for, for one um, response field is indicating if the number was incorrect essentially. So um, a lot of those, about a third of our members that we had identified and that we had outreached to either text or um, via phone calls, only about a third of them accepted. However, those that we actually got on the phone, the vast majority of them ex accepted, I would say closer wow. to, you know, three quarters or 90%. Um, a lot of it was related to incorrect phone numbers. So that's one of the issues that we've struggled with is just contact information. Um, some people didn't understand or thought it was, you know, um, it helped to have the text first, but I think there's always, you know, people are getting more and more distrustful of someone calling and saying, hey, we have something free for you. 
Yeah. No. Um, Good point. Yeah, I have a logical. So, go, go ahead, Robin. Oh no, let go. You go ahead. I, yeah. So the logical next question is: Did you plan any follow-up on the 277 who accepted the offer to try to measure whether there was any demonstrable improvement in their health, or is that kind of impossible? Yeah, I think that that would be a logical next step. Is you know we're still in the distribution phase, so we actually still we have 420 devices. Um, we the OHA says that we are above and beyond um, have distributed much more than any other CCO, but our goal is to really get all of those out to our members. So um, once we get through that distribution phase, um, we really I would like to almost look at it you know at a, as a control group situation where. Uh, especially people where we had the incorrect phone number because we don't want to have too many confounders in there. If someone said they didn't want the device, they may be more likely to be, you know, disengaged with their health care. So that might be a confounder, for example. But if we can kind of identify, you know, a control group with um, less confounding variables, I think that would be, that is the goal is to look at, did we improve the health of our members? Did we um, get these members enrolled in uh, care management program? Did we see, you know, inhaler use, you know, stay more steady compared to the control you, the control group um, if we do have wildfires this season? Um, and we provided the member with air filter. So, so this, these devices will really last them a few years um, and we have additional filters to provide them. So, I mean, this can be a longitudinal a really, you know, long-term study to see if, how this impacted our members. Rich? I'm just curious, Doug, I, I'm just curious, maybe this one's more for you, but is, is there any good study out there about the benefits of air filters in, in forest fire smoke situations for folks with respiratory problems? Do we have any data on that? Uh, I haven't, uh, I I haven't seen it. I was looking for it two years ago when this first uh, uh, came up. And quite frankly, I had my doubts about that. And I, I wish I had uh, pulled the, uh, the picture, but during the very first uh, two years ago, the, the, when uh, our, air, uh, our air quality literally went up beyond the reach of, of the metric. So uh, air quality goes up to uh, 500, which is the worst. And then it was beyond that. It was in the 650 range here in uh, Douglas County. Um, one of our local uh, uh, nurses had a, 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 a husband who strapped a common filter from his furnace to a box fan, ran it inside in a closed room for a weekend, and at the end of that weekend, it was black. And uh, I, I only have to think that yes, I think I think it has an impact uh, because clearly that would have be would be going into someone's lungs. And and so I know that that's a very anecdotal, but I was uh, surprised by that. And and clearly we've got problems with. Uh, I mean, we, we have data that show. Air quality has a, an impact on hospitalizations and emergency room visits, et cetera. The real question okay, is yes. how good are these purifiers uh, within a particular closed room? And I think it, it really depends upon the, the room characteristics, et cetera. So. 
Now, I know we're just being the timekeeper here. I know we just have a few oh. minutes left, and I promise we wouldn't go over. But um, I want to ask you quickly about the 71 HRAs that got completed. So that seems like kind of a side knock-on benefit from doing this kind of project. That wasn't the initial goal, but you kind of threw that one in there and got it done. Can you comment on that? Yeah, we really wanted to take this opportunity to say, you know, we one of the goals we really have is to increase the amount of health risk assessments that we can um, get our you know, get completed, since that's really what drives a lot of the work that we do. Um, and this, you know, what better time to really take advantage of? You know, we've already identified these members being high risk. Um, so the ones that we've re those are ones we've re received. We've given one to everybody. Um, some people were pretty, you know, short on time and didn't want to fill it out then, so we gave them um, a print copy. So I expect we'll be getting, you know, a portion of those back. Um, but really, this was pretty successful. It, it can be a challenge to get that health risk assessment filled out. So, so I'm very happy with the, you know, over 70 of those completed so far. Um, yeah, our, care Rich, our care coordinators are, oh. sorry, I was going to say our case managers are definitely feeling that as well because their caseloads have definitely increased as a result. They've had a lot of members that they've been working with um, that were identified through this process. One of the concerns that I had was that we were, in, in essence, uh, giving a, uh, an implicit message that here's an air purifier that's all you need to uh, keep your health, uh, your breathing status good during, uh, you know, the wildfire conditions. But in fact, uh, it gave us an opportunity to evaluate all of our patients with COPD and asthma, whether or not they were compliant with their prescribed medications and whether their medications were appropriate for, for their condition. And so, that uh, there were a number of uh, patients who were referred to medication therapeutic management uh, uh, care coordination as well. Great. Well, I think on that note, um, we're going to wrap it up. Um, Doug and Robin, thank you so much for a wonderful presentation and more importantly for the wonderful work that you did with your population. Um, for me, it's really rewarding to see that um, an organization like Umpa Health took the data and did something useful with it that makes a difference. And I think when we look at SDOH, it can feel overwhelming because they are deep systemic problems without simple solutions, but we have to start somewhere. And it's one project by project by project that we're gonna make good progress on this. So I thank you for your work. Um, I'd like to thank the audience as well. And also for folks out there in the audience, um, if you're interested in what Uncle Health did, um, feel free to contact uh, Robin or Doug. I think their contact information is on the last slide. Maybe you can put that up there. Um, and um, with that, I, I thank you all for participating today. And I think, Mike, you get the last word. Thank you, Dr. Traver, Dr. Carr, and Dr. Parker for an insightful discussion on social determinants of health and for sharing this unique case study with all of us. And to all of you listening in, thank you for joining us today. There are additional resources in the show notes, which you can view at arcadia.io slash vitals. Uh, there's a housing insecurity and chronic illness data visualization based on Arcadia's own SDOH datasets. 
there's product information about those data sets and an article on how to create a health equity plan plus a link to Umpqua Health's own plan. And then there are a few resources that our guests during the live stream of this episode shared in the comments uh, that provide a bit more color to this specific topic. You can access all of these resources and watch other episodes of Vitals at arcadia.io slash vitals. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.